Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a Slate spoiler special of The Nanny Diaries. And I'm talking to Slate's culture editor, Julia Turner. Hi, Julia. Hi, Dana. Who saw Nanny Diaries with me the other day. And I also just did a crash read of the book so that we would both be up on the book for this spoiler special. So be aware, if you're planning on seeing The Nanny Diaries, that this is the Slate feature wherein secrets are revealed about the plot. So don't listen if you want to be surprised by The Nanny Diaries. Although, if you want to be surprised by The Nanny Diaries, maybe don't go see The Nanny Diaries. (laughs) Yeah, I think, like most formula late summer romantic comedies, it's not going to be something that's going to wildly pull the rug out from under your feet. There might be a couple plot spoilers you might not want to know about, but if you've read the book, you know them anyway. So, okay, I'm going to start off with a leading question for you, Julia, which is that as we were having lunch after seeing The Nanny Diaries, you were saying, as an editor, all the shortcomings and frustrations of this movie really fired me up as an editor, and I wanted to go in and edit the script as if the movie hadn't been made yet and sort of like be a script doctor after the fact. So I was going to ask you, if this script was plopped down on your editor's table, what changes would you make in it? I think this would be one of the cases where you ask the writer for more texture. Somehow, everybody in this movie seemed to be a type. Like, they seemed to be shorthand for a type. So we had uptight Upper East Side mom who shops too much and distracted, self-involved Upper East Side dad who cheats on his wife and cute Moppet tyke who has no particular personality other than first being recalcitrant and then being charming. And... The heroine at the center of our quest, Scarlett Johansson, herself doesn't really have much of a personality or any sort of particularities. What I think would make this kind of satire work is very particular details about the lifestyle, the world she finds herself in, and both the allure of this very ritzy, fancy world and also the things that are repellent about it. And there was none of that. It's very curious to me that there's actually in the source material, the fake novel, actually a memoir, The Nanny Diaries, there is so much of that of that texture, and that's what makes it really readable, even though it definitely qualifies as a beach read and is extremely fast going. Yeah. It's, it's really fun to read because it's full of catty little details about that world. So they were right there in the book, and I don't know why the movie kind of ironed them out, if it was an attempt to please a broader demographic or, or what. Remind me what some of them were, too, because I, I read the book in a whirlwind like oh, four I should years have, I should ago. have stuck Post-it notes on some of the pages. I mean, a lot of it is a little bit brand name dropping, you know, but in, in, in this kind of work that sort of qualifies as as literary texture. I mean, you heard a lot about the shopping list that the mother would make out for the nanny, you know, please get these things for the gift bag for the party. And then each of the items would be really hilarious, like extremely specific, Anouk Guital or whatever it's called, you know, <laughs> Candles, brand names of yeah. floral scents, this and that. And the nanny would shop wrong and get in huge trouble because the tissue paper was the wrong shade of gray or something like that. And all those little details about taste are what's so funny about this world, of course, because, you know, I mean, I would love to know things about who decorated Laura Linney's apartment have the decorator come in and expound on the floral curtains or something because the movie's all about surface and yet we really know so surprisingly little about all these beautiful posh looking surfaces right it's just it, it was all sort of very basic and not particular enough another thing that i think might have been developed in the movie i mean maybe we should just backtrack and explain the plot briefly so the the movie posits that Scarlett Johansson is this anthropology, she's she's got this fascination with anthropology, and there's sort of this setup at the beginning of the movie. Well, and she's actually has a, a degree in anthropology, right? She just graduated from, or I guess it was business. She has a major, major in business, yeah. minor in anthropology. And the idea you get is that her mother wants her to go out and have all the career success that she never did as a single mom in New Jersey, and so you get the sense that the mother's really gunning for the business major, but that Scarlett's real passion is anthropology. And we find her at the beginning of the movie at the Museum of Natural History, where she's first looking at the dioramas of life in Papua New Guinea and then 
they begin to morph into dioramas of life on the Upper East Side and sort of the arcane rituals of life on the Upper East Side. So you've got the people going to the plastic surgeon and you've got sort of the arcane shopping rituals all laid out in the same kind of tableau that you might see at the Museum of Natural History. So the movie is set up as Scarlett Johansson kind of going through this world and classifying its mores and manners and then she never really engages with any yeah, of that it. Yeah, that actually is precisely what the movie fails to do in a way, is do some kind of exhaustive catalog of the Upper East Side type. Instead, it just makes the most vague gestures at doing that. And but then, so at any rate, so Scarlett Johansson's character, Annie, is caught up basically by accident in this world, right? It becomes a nanny sort of against her own will. And then, well, if you've seen The Devil Wears Prada, you kind of know the story because the rest of the movie is about her being exploited by this unbearable boss who she eventually breaks with at the end of the movie. Both of us having read the book, I think we can talk about one important change from the book, which is, for one thing, Scarlett Johansson's character, the nanny's social class, is changed. She's essentially downgraded from middle class or even almost upper middle class in the book. She went to a private college, and there's a lavish graduation party that's thrown for her at one point. She's not poor at all. She's sort of a middle class girl in the book. In the movie, she's made into the daughter of a single mother from New Jersey who's a nurse, played by Donna Murphy, and the idea is sort of that her mother has struggled and scraped and saved her whole life to put her daughter through college. And I guess, you know, the idea there is to make a more interesting gulf between her world and the Park Avenue world that she goes to work in. To me, though, this part of the story with the mother really didn't work. For one thing, it was just really a sort of tedious imposition whenever the mother story would come up because it was so serious and dramatic and didn't really have any any comic content. But then there's also this odd idea that she keeps a secret from her mother that she has a job as a nanny in the first place. Right. She pretends to her mom throughout the movie that she actually has the job at the bank that her mother would like her to have. And, you know, there's sort of a couple scenes where she, you know, pretends that she takes over her friend's apartment and pretends to live in this apartment so that her mother doesn't know that she's actually living in like a tiny back room that looks out on an air shaft in this ritzy apartment on the Upper East Side. But the thing that's weird about it, I mean, on the one hand, it's just not funny and it sort of deadens the movie, which is already pretty dead. But the other thing is that it kind of undercuts what little moral heft the movie does have. I mean, the movie is in some ways this comment on motherhood and Scarlett Johansson sort of descends into this Upper East Side world where people just aren't very good parents, or at least this couple are not good parents. And she sort of immediately senses that. She's fundamentally decent throughout the whole movie. She's never really tempted by the Upper East Side world, or but, but she's sort of held up as this paragon of kindness who can see that this couple is neglecting their child, and she provides this love to the, for the child, and in fact finds it very hard to leave this abusive boss because she cares so much about the child. Meanwhile, she's being totally wretched to her mother and lying to her and not returning her phone calls. Yeah, we were saying after the movie, we don't really get where Scarlett Johansson's moral high ground comes from. I mean, as an actress, she's kind of a blank. You have an automatic sympathy for her, but not really a sense that she has much of a backbone. But then her actual behavior in the movie to her mother is really appalling. She actually seems to avoid her calls for the entire summer that she works for this family, right? Won't let her come and visit and keeps putting her off with this, this I'm so busy. So in addition to deceiving her, she's also just plain ignoring her. So, yeah, it's sort of unclear where where her values are supposed to to spring from. Right. Well, if the movie wanted to be, like, sort of a sprightly, funny farce, it could have gotten more into the details of the Upper East Side world. And if the movie wanted to be really, you know, a disquisition on motherhood and mother-child relationships, then it needed to actually kind of engage them more. But instead, it sort of just touches on it without really getting into the thick of it. Yeah, and actually with some of the mother-child relationships that are presented as ideal being pretty unappealing, not only the one between her and her mother, but I actually found the relationship between her and Gray or the little boy completely fake and, and cloying, and it's really key in a movie like this that there be something real between them, right? Because she's supposed to be the one thing standing between him and this complete vacuum of lovelessness. Yeah. And yet the scenes between them, it wasn't 
really having to do even with the fact that the kid was a terrible actor or anything. He was just such a generic little kid. The writing was just awful. I mean, and the thing that's amazing about hanging out with kids that age is that they have these crazy imaginations and they come up with these wild things. And if you just slow down enough to stop and pay attention to Which them. Which also exists in the book a little bit, right? I mean, the kid is always doing this jazz hands kind of Bob Fosse dance in the book. <laughs> and he likes to go awasailing. Do you remember the scene where he goes awasailing on Christmas <laughs> and insists on calling it that? And he's actually a quirky, funny little kid with a right. personality. Right. But I don't know. Once again, I think maybe this movie was sort of made for, for mall culture. Or it's trying to appeal to such a broad chunk of people that maybe a kid doing jazz of... hands was like too troubling <laughs> yeah, too troubling. <laughs> oh no i mean i just I, I don't know there's something about i'm just thinking of no reservations another very bland romantic comedy that i reviewed recently that also just seemed to go to great lengths to iron its characters personalities and starch them so that there wouldn't be the slightest wrinkle and it ends up making the whole enterprise so much less fun we were talking the other day about who we might recast in the lead role and and this conversation is reminding me of the television show Weeds which I don't know whether you watch it but yes. on, on Weeds there's this kooky ex-girlfriend of character played by Zooey Deschanel who has a really great relationship with the the two sons in the family not great like supportive and good but just like really vivid and interesting and real and they really connect in this funny way and the child actors are very good which makes me think maybe Zoe Deschanel could have been she could have carried it off she has a little bit more of that zany romantic comedy heroine kind of side that you could sort of see her pulling it off Scarlett Johansson keeps getting casting comedies like by Woody Allen recently in Scoop but to me, she just she doesn't have that touch at all. She sort of needs to be an odalisk lounging on pillows and exerting some kind of sexual pull allure. over the male gaze or something. But I, I, just seeing her capering around New York, pulling off manic feats, doesn't this just doesn't make me laugh. Yeah, it didn't work. I mean, the other thing too is that the movie has these like very heavy-handed nods to Mary Poppins at several points. At one point, the job she applies for is at Prudential, and in a sort of all too clever visual pun, the the red Prudential umbrella like flies off the side of the Prudential building and then floats down oh, to Scarlett that's Johansson. Embarrassing. That's early in the movie, and you know things are going to get embarrassing. Yeah, you're point. like, oh dear. And so she's then floats up on the umbrella Mary Poppins style, and you're like, mm, Scarlett Johansson, you are no Mary Poppins. But you you need sort of a sense of that kind of madcap on the edge of madness, I think, in the, in the like nanny governess figure that's going to make everything that seems so harsh and strict actually really fun. And I don't know, Scarlett doesn't You're right. have that. Another reason this movie does itself harm in referring to Mary Poppins or referencing it in any way is just that Mary Poppins is an infinitely better movie. <laughs> and it just reminds you of what a charming and sprightly movie that is and sort of how, how sodden this one feels in comparison. And yet it's strange this movie sort of has so much going for it. It has a really good supporting cast. Everyone except Scarlett Johansson is, I think, beautifully cast and really excellent in their roles. And Laura Linney is, if anything, too good an actress for this movie. She brings this powerhouse, layered kind of performance to this role that was essentially written... I think, to be something like Cruella de Vil. Right. And so as a result, she seems to be migrating in from a different movie where you're supposed to have a lot of sympathy for her character. Then again, I was grateful to her for being a misfit in the movie because she gave it something interesting to look at. Right. In some ways, she recalled, her performance recalled that of Meryl Streep in Devil Wears Prada, where she was this monster, but had these several moments in which you felt sympathetic towards her in the movie. But, you know, and that movie was, certainly wasn't like a great feat of writing, but it had enough depth and wit to allow you to... But compared to this movie, I mean, in in the genre of the assistant lit, right. glossy women's movie, it, it was a great feat of writing. I'm just trying to remember that scene. My favorite scene in Devil Wears Prada is very specific and has a lot of texture about its world. 
and is far better than anything in the book, The Devil Wears Prada, I think. I was saying that there's sort of a reverse crisscross relationship between these two books and two movies, I think, where Devil Wears Prada improves on the book and and, and Nanny Diaries kind of loses it in translation. But remember the scene where Meryl Streep is going on about the color blue of Anne Hathaway's sweater and how it's filtered down from the collections of years before? Yes, and she's very specific about who showed that particular cerulean blue in which show and which year, and then it showed up in which... Line. Yeah, that actually, I mean, in addition to being a great character moment that makes you understand her character a lot better, actually taught me something about the fashion world and made me sort of think about what you see in the windows of the dress barn in a, in a whole new way. The other performance that I loved in this movie, and I wish that we'd seen more of, was Paul Giamatti's. He, he you know, you're so used to seeing him playing this sh- sideways style schlub, and instead he's playing a total power broker and physically looks very different. I mean, his he sort of has this trimmed beard and he just seems really mean and piggish, and it's a, it's a great performance. Yeah, he's almost unrecognizable. I mean, I, I knew that it was going to be him, and then there's a big deal in the movie made of the slow reveal where you always see him behind newspapers and things because he's such an absent dad. And then finally, 20 minutes into the movie or so, you actually see his face. But I'm not sure if I had just walked in completely raw that I would have known it was Paul Giamatti at first because, like you say, you expect to see him all sort of cute and stubbly and, and schlumping around. And he really caught that horrible sort of, you know, the ex-frat boy dead-eyed banker type just nailed it cold yeah it was really great you were saying that uh, Laura Lenny and Paul Giamatti seemed like they were in a different movie like a straight drama and, and it's one I would like to see <laughs> yeah the two of them seemed to be on the same page about what kind of movie they were in but it wasn't actually the lines that they were given to speak unfortunately did you have ideas about how to recast poor Miss Scarlet's role I was just casting about Zoe Deschanel is pretty good. I just I think that we're sort of lacking a mischievous ingenue of the moment who's just, you know, the go-to person for roles like this. I was trying to imagine Amy Adams. She might be a little bit old for the role, but I think she has some of that energy and spark. And the whole idea of this nanny who sweeps in Mary Poppins style and changes the staid family's life, it, it has to be someone who brings a lot of energy to the screen, and that's definitely not Scarlett Johansson right now. Speaking of which, changing the family's life, you reminded me that there's this climactic scene at the end of the book where she tells off the family to the nanny cam, which is the camera that's been set to spy upon her in the teddy bear in the child's room. And I couldn't remember in the movie whether that scene actually happens in the book. Yeah, she tells off a teddy bear, although she ends up erasing the really mean tape that she makes in the book. And in, in the movie, she actually leaves that tape in the in the nanny cam and it ends up being watched. She says all those horrible things, you know, about the lovelessness of the family. And then she feels too guilty and goes back and erases it and sort of records a milder version and leaves that. And does she ever find out that they've seen it in the Nanny Diaries? Book? No, no. The ending of the book, the Nanny Diaries, is quite a bit bleaker than the end of the, uh, the end of the movie, which I guess is not unusual in book to movie transitions. But the Laura Linney character in the movie, well, here's what we can spoil in our spoiler special, turns it all around because she was so inspired by Scarlett Johansson's character. So after they have this falling out and they're on Nantucket together, and then the babysitter gets fired in shame for also a different reason than she's fired in the book. It's because Paul Giamatti's character feels her up, which doesn't really go with anything else in the movie. But leaving that aside. After that, we hear that the exes, the socialite couple, have divorced and that Laura Linney has sort of turned her ways around and is bringing up her son in a more hands-on way. And we see her reading to him. And, you know, the idea they is that she They actually are reading separate books, though. They're lying in bed That's reading true. What is she books. reading? It's something funny. That is one of the funnier details, the, the, the book that she's reading there. And I can't remember what it is. But there's some sense that at least she's, she's going to start to put in some effort as a parent because of this story that happened. In the, in the book, no, not at all. There's actually a really sad and loveless sense that this boy is just going to grow up in a horrible world and probably become a piggish banker himself someday, but, you know, that he had his little interlude with his nanny. It's very depressing. Somehow it has a more depressing ending, but the experience of reading it was more fun, and the experience of watching the movie was more depressing. Well, that's the strange thing about this movie. I mean, like a lot of leaden romantic comedies, it actually leaves you walking out feeling 
way sadder than when you went in. <laughs> However wonderful the fate of, of all the characters turns out to be. Oh, can we just briefly mention, too, how horrible the the love interest was? I just, I, I, I'm really sorry if he's listening, but I just cannot stand this actor, Chris Evans, who's playing, what has he done lately? He's been in the Fantastic Four movies. Oh, he had an ongoing role on TV, I believe. But he's sort of the go-to Ken doll of the moment. He's this very, very fake-looking, kind of handsome, preppy guy. He's so bad. I didn't ever think that I would see an actor that I think is worse than Freddie Prince Jr., to whom I also apologize if he is listening. <laughs> yeah, Freddie and Chris are listening together, a tear rolling down their cheeks. <laughs> They're at the coffee bean and tea leaf somewhere in L.A. <laughs> We um, work so hard. <laughs> but this guy actually looks a lot like Freddie Prince Jr. And with a little injection of Jason Priestley, I, his hair is a little sandier. <laughs> that sounds scary, an injection of Jason Priestley. <laughs> he has like four facial expressions. There's and... something so inherently loathsome about the person of Chris Evans that I just kept assuming that this character he plays, who's known only as Harvard Hottie, the preppy boyfriend, was going to turn out to be slimy in some way. I was just waiting for the scene where he was uncovered as, you know, some money-grubbing guy or, you know, cheating with another girl. You know, that there was something like morally reprehensible about him. But at the end of the movie, he's sort of the Prince Charming. And actually, in a strange irony that's not really explored, he is an Upper East Side, Harvard, rich kid who's presented as, as, as a nice one, supposedly. But ultimately, he seems like an opportunity for Annie, Scarlett Johansson's character, to marry into this same world that she's just rejected. Right, and hire her own nanny. Julia, thanks a lot for coming to the movie with me and um, bearing it and recording this Slate spoiler special. Thanks so much, Dana. It was fun. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.